So we are to be doing good works. We're not to be involved in foolish arguments. Why? Because foolish arguments are a distraction to the work that God wants us to do. Benefits derived from our understanding and response to God's grace are so significant that it should spur us on to good works. We need to protect our ministries from these distracting things that are trying to move our priorities away from where it needs to be. If we're arguing about the color of the carpet, then we're not reaching the lost. We've lost it. open your Bibles to the book of Titus. We are in the final sermon on the book of Titus. Next week we'll be going into the book of Jude as we uh, get closer and closer to Easter. Uh, I want to do kind of a, a recap this morning since this is the last sermon on this, in, on this chapter, but Paul begins his letter to Titus. Titus is on the island of Crete. And he tells Titus that God desires that all would come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Now, it's not just that they know about Jesus, but that that, that that knowledge leads them to surrender to God, surrender to Christ, and to have a saving knowledge that leads to the forgiveness of their sins. And in that process, what he promises, God promises eternal life. And, and God doesn't lie, so we, can, we understand that that promise is sure. And this is why Titus is on the island. They had, Paul had been there with, with Titus. He leaves Titus there so he can continue on, but he didn't get everything completed. He, he started churches, and churches are growing, but he needs Titus to complete the work that Paul had started, and the, the first job is to appoint leaders, to appoint leaders in each of the churches. And he gives Titus very specific guidelines on what those, how those leaders should be, their character. And these leaders are greatly needed in the church. Conflicts, problems have arisen in, the, in these Cretan churches, just like they do in all churches. Anytime you get a group of people together, their thoughts and their actions sometimes seem to drift away from the truth of God's word. So conflict will begin to arise. Or the evil one will try to supplant people in the church will try to influence the weaker members in order to cause discord among the whole group. It's that spiritual battle that we fight all the time. We always have to be prepared for it. Paul talks about that in the book of Ephesians. So Titus is to rebuke those who are causing conflict and command them to return to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because of God's grace, and Paul tells him, because of God's grace, we are to live lives that are marked by self-control, uprightness, and godliness. And we are to live this kind of life as we wait for Christ to come back. Christ died to save us from this life. It's counter to, to what the world wants us to do. We, we don't live lives like the world does. We live lives that are different. We're gentle. We're courteous to everyone. Self-controlled. And in the process, while we're living these lives, we are pursuing good works. We're not looking for conflict. We're not looking for strife. We, we need to be living according to God's guidelines. We're to be submissive to our leaders. Doing good works. Avoiding quarrels. 
We're to be gentle. Now, this doesn't mean we don't have disagreements. We have disagreements. But that means we handle them correctly. We handle them in a godly, in a, a very godly manner. With the whole goal in dealing with conflict is to restore the relationship. That's the sad part about when people leave a church at a time when they are under duress or they're under, have, having conflict. No, you need to deal with the conflict. And then if God leads you away from that church, then that's fine. God is sending you off someplace else to do ministry somewhere else. But you need to deal with the conflict. Our lives are to be different than the lives of those in the world. We've been redeemed. We must not walk in the ways that we walked before our salvation. Being foolish, disobedient, being led astray, seeking pleasure and passions that are ungodly, being full of malice and envy, being hated by others and hating others. Those are not the things that should be adjectives that are used to describe us as believers in Christ. Too many times these words describe the church itself. And then we wonder why people say the people in the church are a bunch of hypocrites. Yeah, we are. We're broken. But we shouldn't be living that way. We should be living different lives. We've been redeemed. Not walking in the ways of the world or in the ways, our ways before salvation. And there you have the summary of the last seven sermons on Titus. And this brings us to our final adventure, our final closing notes and information from the Apostle Paul. Let's go to verse 9 of Titus 3. Remember, last week he was talking about those, the controversies that happened. He says, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Now understand, he calls them foolish controversies. There are some things that we need to discuss. We need to reason things out when it comes to theology, when it comes to the law, when it comes to Scripture. But we not, don't do it foolishly. We don't do foolish things. Just because somebody says that, they are, that they're Calvinists and we're more Arminian doesn't mean that we can't be brothers and sisters and still worship together. To argue about that is foolish. To say that one is better than the other is foolish because Scripture actually supports both. I think we both have it wrong. We shouldn't be arguing about whether we are pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> Christ is coming back. That's all that matters. Now, we can discuss it, and we can talk about it. We can support it all with Scripture. And both of, all of it can be supported. I can see it in all, all of the, All the different possibilities are there. Because God doesn't want us to know exactly, because nobody knows the hour or the day when he's going to return. Our job is not to figure it out. Our job is to be ready at all times. So we are to be doing good works. We're not to be involved in foolish arguments. Why? Because foolish arguments are a distraction to the work that God wants us to do. The benefits derived from our understanding and response to God's grace are so significant that it should spur us on to good works. We need to protect our ministries from these distracting things that are trying to move our priorities away from where it needs to be. If we're arguing about the color of the carpet, 
and we're not reaching the lost, we've lost it. You know how it is. You're working on a project. You've got, you know, probably three or four hours to work on it. You've got to get it done. And the kids come along and say, hey, Dad, I need this. Or, hey, Mom, I need this. Or the phone rings. And it's one of your friends or it's your, a relative who needs you to talk to them. And you're like, I, I'm never going to get this done. We, we don't want to be distracted from the, the good deeds that God has placed before us to do. Because remember... <laughs> We're not, we, I don't even look for good deeds. God's already prepared the good deeds for us to walk in. We just need to walk in them, but we can't get distracted chasing after things that don't really matter. And I think the biggest distraction in our lives are those little square things we carry in our pockets. I'm old enough to remember when we didn't have cell phones. And I think I was less busy then, but I still had the same amount of stuff to do. They're a distraction. I'll be honest with you, I've sat on YouTube, and I'll, I'll see somebody, one of, one of the people I watch normally, and they'll have like a short. A short is less than a minute long. I'm thinking, okay, I'm just going to watch that one short, because it's, it's an interesting topic. It could be on theology, so it's great. I need to watch it. Before I know it, I'm, I've been watching cat videos for the last 15 minutes. Not that there's anything wrong with cat videos. I think they're hilarious. I love cats. But they're a distraction when I should have been working on something else. And just like today, distractions were a problem in the early church. Paul had to instruct Timothy himself also. I mean, he's telling Titus, watch out for distractions. He also has to tell Timothy about the similar things occurring in the church at Ephesus. In 2 Timothy 2, he says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. Boy, that's not what we need. We don't need anything, anything breeding quarrels. We've got plenty of quarrels that happen on their own. And the Lord's servants must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. You know, if we really step back and you look at the controversies that have been in the church, the reality is that they're just what exactly what Paul calls them. They're foolish. Very foolish. They stand in stark contrast to what is excellent, what is profitable. They stand in contrast to the doctrines and the duties of grace that we saw when we looked at verse 8. And when we engage in these debates, we're led to a place where we become divided. And that deviates us from the mission that the church is supposed to be on and its purpose. Now understand, there are those in the church that are causing the division. So what do we do with those? Titus is going to find out from Paul what's going to do. So remember back in the first chapter of Titus. Paul tells Titus that if you have somebody who's preaching false doctrine, he tells them, tells Titus, rebuke them sharply. Because the goal is in rebuking these false teachers is to get them back into teaching sound doctrine. So if they're teaching sound, if they're teaching false doctrine, you are to rebuke them. But here in chapter 3, here's what Paul tells Titus about those who are causing division. He says, as for a person who stirs up division, in verse 10, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. 
And when I started thinking about that, so, so I think, is Paul saying that teaching false doctrine is not nearly as bad as causing division? And I'm like, he is. Not that teaching false doctrine is good, and we've got to stop that too. But even worse, is, teaching, is, is causing division in the church. Paul instructs him to issue warnings one time first. If it doesn't change, you are warned one time, another time again. And if that doesn't work, if they're still causing division, you say, I want nothing more to do with you. This is very similar to what Christ teaches when he talks about having conflict with our brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, if your brother sins against you, go to him, tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. That's if a brother sins against you, you are to go to them and tell them what their sins are. You're not supposed to sit there, well, I'll, I'll, I'll forgive them once they come to me. No, you're to go to them if they sin against you. But if he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. You don't want to be around him. This process of church discipline is a necessity. It extends beyond just protecting the church from discord or destruction. It aims to guide the divisive person away from their error. Here's what Paul continues in Titus 3 about what this kind of person is like who causes division. It says, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. He calls them warped. The, the Greek term that's used here means a person that is off track, not just off track a little bit, they have continued off track. You know, if you have two straight lines and you move them less than a degree, as they continue, they get further and further away from each other. And that's what happens to these people. You know, when I go to Lowe's and I, I'm buying, trying to buy some wood, I'm getting ready, I'm, I'm thinking about my next project I gotta do at the house. And if I go to Lowe's I, and I'm buying like, you know, six to eight foot long pieces of lumber, I will pick that lumber up and I'll look down it. And I'll tell you, recently, last time I bought wood, about 50% of it was warped on the end. And that's what that kind of person is. They're warped. They look straight. You look at them, you look at them, a stack of them on, on, the, on, the, on the shelf there, and they look like they're all perfectly straight. The minute you come and you look down it, it's warped. Now, sometimes I'll take it if I know I'm going to cut it off anyways, but most of the time I just put it back. And I've been known to go through 10 or 15 pieces, throwing it towards the back and pulling out pieces that aren't warped. Because if, you, if it's warped, it's going to throw everything off. A contentious person is warped. And hopefully, when you go to them and say, hey, that's enough. You need to stop this. It brings them back in plumb, back in line. His next, next thing he calls them, he calls them sinful and the sense that Paul is using here is that not that they sinned one time. It's that they are continuing in their sin. 
It's not a one sin and, and I've done it and I'm a sinner. It's, no, it's that continuous going back to that sin over and over and over again. And because they're continuing in their sinful action, Paul says that they are self-condemned. See, it's, it's not that God is condemning them. It's that this divisive person is so contentious in their actions that it severs all hope of justification by grace. They're never going to see it. And they're just going to continue down that path. And they've now condemned themselves because they don't see it. And it is a self-condemnation that leads Paul to the instruction to avoid them. Why? Because refusing correction, the contentious person is without excuse. And they're going to continue to cause problems. And I, I've known people in the church, they may not cause problems with other people, but boy, their attitude is just not good. And you talk to them on a one-on-one basis, and they're just like, I don't like this person in the church. And my first thought, it's not their fault, it's you. I was talking to Tiffany, I was talking to a young man this week, and he was talking about a problem he had with a sister. And I'm like, dude, you understand? You can control you. You can't control her. Your first mistake was getting angry with her. And putting something before the love you should have for your sister. So if you're, if, you're, if you're in a situation and you're mad about it. Now granted there are reasons sometimes to be mad in situations. I've had them in business situations. I'm just, I'm just fit to be tied. When somebody tries to cheat me or somebody tries to do something I know is illegal. I told them not to and they did it anyways. But you know what? I'm in control of me. I'm not in control of anybody else. So I need to avoid that person who's contentious. Not have anything to do with them. But there's a challenge of adhering to the command to avoid somebody. Because arguments arise because some issues are worth, there are some issues that are definitely worth disputing. And those are not the things that we say, well, you know, I'm not going to argue about anything. No, there are some things we're not supposed to argue with. The problem is, is when we become to the point where we, that's what we do all the time. We're always looking for an argument. We're always looking for a problem. We're always looking to find somebody doing something wrong so we can, can, we can argue with them about it. We always want to be right. We need to understand this idea of avoiding arguments. First, Paul addresses ministry priorities, prompting the reevaluation of whether secondary issues overshadow primary concerns. Are there things in ministry that don't really matter? We can discuss them, it's no big deal. But we can't let those things overpower and take the place of the work that we are supposed to be doing. We can't let the minors keep us from doing the majors. We can disagree on the minors, but there are a lot of majors we must agree on. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, He came, He died, He, he rose on the third day. He, you know, faith through, uh, salvation is through faith alone. There's a whole list of them. I'm going to be teaching, uh, starting today I'm teaching a class on uh, Sunday school. We're teaching on the signs of the times, signs of the, of the end of times. Once we get through that, I want to teach a class on doctrine. What are those majors that we need to agree on? And one of those minors we really don't have to worry about. We can discuss them, we can have disagreements, but there are majors that we must keep in front of us. Some people are compelled to divide for the, for the sake of just enjoyment. They enjoy causing conflict. 
We need to draw a distinction between arg- having discussions and arguments even under, under, that are a necessity and the difference between that and somebody who loves to divide. There's some people, I know someone who loves to divide people. If you say A, they're going to say B. If you say one, they're going to say two. This, just to have a separate argument. And I, they drove me crazy. I don't, I don't see them much anymore, but they're like, no, I get, more, I get more done through conflict. I'm like, you waste more time in conflict. You know? <laughs> Paul, his words highlight the seriousness of being divisive. Being divisive is not this that you disagree with something and you can talk with somebody about it and maybe even agree to disagree. Divisive is you're always looking for something that is wrong and you're going to tell that person about it. I, I love having theological discussions. I love it. Iron sharpens iron. But if you come at me all the time saying, well, Pastor, here was your, here's where you're wrong. Here's what you're doing wrong. Here's what you're doing wrong. I, I, I'm sorry, I'm not going to listen to you. Show me in Scripture what, where it says that. Show me in Scripture. It harms the church if all we do is engage in arguments that serve people's ego or provide just entertainment for them. It should be avoided unless absolutely necessary. I've been in churches where there were, every single time we had a meeting, no matter whether, if it was a deacon meeting, or there was always certain voices that were always coming up. I remember sitting in a meeting one time, and you know, it was an open meeting, and they said, well, so-and-so is going to come tonight. I'm like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. Well, we're going to be here for an hour and a half extra than we planned on, because that person always has something they want to argue about. Always. Now, I want you to understand, Paul was no stranger to debates. And he confesses that what might be enjoyable for the individual is not always healthy for the church. When he was in Athens, in Arapagos, he, he didn't argue, but he discussed, and he used their, their intelligence and their, their idols to show that God is God, and introduced them to Yahweh. And a lot of them wanted to talk to him about it, and debate back and forth, and talk about it. But it wasn't an argument, it was a conversation. Arguments are not always helpful for personal growth in character or understanding, and definitely not always healthy for the church. But there are times where debate is necessary. He tells Titus in in verse 9, he says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. He's saying the person who's contentious must hold true to the word of God that has been taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. That's, we're, supposed, we're supposed to, as leaders, be able to do this. But we must question the motivation behind enjoying conflict and whether it aligns with God's priorities. We need to be, by nature, peaceable, gentle, standing firm when necessary, but not deriving delight from debates among our brothers and sisters in Christ that does not prioritize them in life, does not prioritize the purpose and goal. The gospel-centered church, Paul asserts, must prioritize nothing other than grace. Paul is going to finish this letter with some instructions. And he's going to throw some names out. I want to kind of talk about them a little bit as we finish up here with 
Paul's final um, words to Titus. He says in verse 12 and 13, he says, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me in Nicopolis. For I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to, to speed Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. This was Paul's custom. Uh, he always, he'd always would, would deal with all this stuff about the church, all these th- things about theology, all these things about what the church should be doing, what we should be doing as leaders and as members. And then he would say, okay, here's what I need for you to do. Because he was trying to move the church along. He was building the church. And he gives personal directions, commitments, or comments, and, and greetings. Paul has plans for Titus. Titus's plan, Paul's plan for Titus was not for him to stay in, in Crete until he died. He had other plans for him that we're going to see in just a few moments. He tells him to come to Nicopolis. Nicopolis, there are many different towns in ancient, the ancient world that were called Nicopolis. It was a common name. Um, it, actually, um, it actually means city of victory is what it means. And there were a lot of wars going on. So you defeat a city. This is our city of victory. So you would name it Nicopolis. You change the name. But this was probably one that's on the Adriatic Sea, which is off of Greece, kind of neck and northeast of Athens, because we know that Paul was probably in that area. And that would be a great place for the next place that, Tim, that Titus was going to have to go, which was to Dalmatia. In 2 Timothy verse four, chapter, uh, verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 10, Paul's talking to Timothy. He says, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. So Paul had somebody who was a disciple of his, and this person did not want to stay in the faith. Instead, he wanted to go seeking the pleasures of the world. So he ends up in Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. So he's going to send Titus, after he comes to him in the wintertime, to Dalmatia. And the, and, and the Nicopolis, where Paul's probably at, is the perfect place to launch out. Because Paul would be in one central place and he would launch out his disciples to all the different areas. But he doesn't want to leave Crete in the lurch. He doesn't want to leave Crete without an effective leader. He's not decided yet. He's going to either send him Artemis or Tychicus to replace Titus. Because the work is not done. But Titus must continue his work until, the time, or until one of them arrives. This is the only place that we see Artemis. We don't, we don't really know anything else about, that, about Artemis. But we, do, we have seen Tychicus earlier. In the book of Acts, in Acts 20, verse 4, it says, So Pater, the Berean, son of, 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 of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and the Thessalonians, Aristarchus, and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus, and Trophimus. Now, Asian does not mean he was what we think of Asian. No, he wasn't Chinese, or Japanese, or Korean, or Thai, a Thai or Cambodian, but he was probably from a place pretty close to probably Iran, Iraq today, and that was considered part of Asia. Actually, up into Turkey is considered part of Asia also. So they call them Asians. And Paul talks about Tychicus in Colossians 4. He says, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He was one that Paul would send out with the letters that go to the different churches. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. So he's sending him. So Paul asked Titus to help, also help Zenus and Apollos, who were presently on Crete. These were probably the two who brought the letter to Titus. To help them continue their mission by supplying them with everything that they need to go on. Supplying the needs of those who traveled from home to home in different areas was, to proclaim the gospel was a very reasonable and it was evidently honored expectation among Christians. 
to provide for those who are sharing the gospel. It's the only, the only reference we have to Zenos in the New Testament. But we know that he was an expert in Jewish law, which I have to think that's pretty interesting because remember, Paul's telling Titus, don't get into any controversies or arguments about the law. So I imagine he had a reason for sending Zenos, who was an expert in the law. He probably could have been very well have helped Titus to confront those who were engaging in foolish arguments. Now, Apollos was an, an Alexandrian Jew who was converting. We read about him in Acts 18 and 19 in, verse, in 1 Corinthians. But in the midst of that, and I wanted to get through that because in the midst of that, Paul jumps back again. And so we can understand what was the most important message of the whole letter. And remember, this is a letter. This wasn't just, he sent chapter 1 on Tuesday and two weeks later he sent chapter 2. This was a full letter that was sent to them. In verse 14, he says, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. There it is again. So what, I mean, if you haven't figured out by now that one of the things we're supposed to be doing is good works. So as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Now, we must understand that while good works do not save us, when we are saved, we will produce good works. When Jesus was warning about false teachers, here's what he tells us in Matthew 7. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit. Nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. I know that because my trees, I'm struggling with my fruit trees to get them to go. Some of them have got disease. They don't, they don't bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. As believers in Christ, we are to be bearing good fruit. Paul told the church of Philippi, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. We're waiting for Christ's return. We're supposed to be doing good works up until Christ's return. But Paul said to Titus, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of our Father. Our good works are a sign of our righteousness. It's a sign of of our salvation. The kids are the kids are reading, well, I'm reading and recording and then so they can listen to it. Sergeant York's biography, his diary. And it's interesting because he was he was a he's a rebel rouser. He was a drinker. He was a troublemaker. And he came to Christ. And he sits there and he says, I came to Christ. I realized I needed to do some good things. And he was doing, he, was, he says, I, I started going to the church. He started singing. He was a tenor. He took music lessons so he can learn how to sing better. He started teaching Sunday school. This is all before he was drafted. And if you don't know the story, Gary Cooper had a great movie about the story about him. World War I. But it's, it's interesting to read his biography because it's, it's all in his language. So he talks like a hillbilly, which I seem to understand pretty well. <laughs> but it's interesting because he says that when he was saved, the way he knew he was saved was because he was doing good works. He wanted to do good works. 
So we started teaching Sunday school to the kids. Started praying with people. Started doing things for people. See, it's, it's, we want experiences today. We want to, we want to be, we want to be shown things. Sometimes God shows us in the most amazing ways. And for him, he says, I I knew I was saved. I knew I was saved because I was doing good works. I was doing good things. Jesus says in Matthew 5, he says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What Paul is asking Titus to do in helping Zenos and Apollos to go forward and to continue in this ministry because they probably used all the resources to get to Crete. Now he's saying give them what they need to move on in the ministry. That is an example of doing a good work. Paul consistently conveyed greetings from himself as he finishes up this letter to fellow Christians and to all the recipients of his letter. In his concluded greeting here to Titus, he says, all who are with me send greetings. So all the people that Titus would have known who were still with Paul send their greetings. He says, greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. And in saying, greet those who love us in the faith, Paul is hinting that there are individuals in the church who don't love Paul and don't agree with Paul. In Paul's final words, grace be with you all is a prayer for God's grace to be manifested in every one of us. He's not just speaking to Titus. He's speaking to all the Cretan churches. He's speaking to all the churches throughout time. God's grace be with you. And while this letter was written directly to Titus, it was more than likely shared with all the churches of Crete. You know, today there are individuals in the Western church who promote falsehoods. I've been watching some videos this week about people who are promoting falsehoods. Lead on God to lives. If you guys know anything about IHOP, the, the place of the, the 24-hour prayer has been going on down in Kansas City. Mike Bickle, the, the pastor who started that, has been, just been, he's now just fallen. He's fallen. He committed sins that he shouldn't have been committing with women. Always seems to be the downfall of pastors. Satan knows how to get men, I'm telling you. But they promote fall hosts. They lead ungodly lives. They exhibit unholy attitudes. They demonstrate self-willed behavior. They sow division, conflicts in the church. And all too often, those people, instead of being rebuked, are tolerated. Because they have influence. Permitted to maintain the presence within the church, causing conflict and causing strife. And many times they're respected, given a platform that they shouldn't have. The absolute stance on false teachers and, and, and people who cause division is to avoid them. And those who are causing divisions must be rejected. When we encounter anything, anything at all that undermines the word of God, whether it be foolish controversies, mystical, allegorical speculations about something, or mere arguments and disputes about matters of God, the advice is very clear. Shun it. Turn away from it. Walk in the opposite direction. Go away from it. Stop it. Put an end to it. Because it is nothing more than the doctrine of demons. Jesus Jesus instituted the church... And the enemy wants to destroy it. 
and he'll do anything he can, and he'll use anybody that he can find to destroy the church. No amount of arguing and debate will change somebody's mind who's divisive. No amount of, of rebuking, really, will do it, because that's why Paul says do it twice, and then wipe the dust off your feet and turn away. Because remaining in their presence will erode your faith. I look at the church sometimes, not our church, the general church in general. I look at the progressive church today. And I think, how could people, how could we have drifted so far? How could we have drifted so far? It's like a gangrene that begins to grow in the church. So bear good fruit in keeping with repentance. Our, see, our ability to bear fruit is based upon one thing, and that's staying attached to the vine. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We bear fruit by staying attached to the vine who supplies us what we need to bear good fruit. I have a, I have a grapevine in my backyard. This, year, this last year, I got six gallons of grapes. I love it. They're in the freezer now because I haven't had time to put them up, but six gallons of grapes. If I go through and I cut off all of my vines all the way back at the, at the big root, I'll have nothing. Why? Because they can't produce fruit. Now, I, I trim them back every once in a while. Every year I trim them back and get new growth, but I don't trim them back all the way to the stalk because then they would not grow and won't produce anything. In order for us to produce fruit, we need to have an intimate fellowship with Jesus Christ. Our fruit is evidence as well as a result of our changed mind, our transformed life, and our ongoing communion with Jesus Christ.